This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, where we use books to think about climate, ecology, and animal justice. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today is a special joint episode with Matt Haugen of Terrain over at terrain.substack.com. Um, and Terrain is a newsletter where Matt writes his own short posts about climate and environmental issues. Uh, he interviews experts and also does occasional podcasts about movies with environmental themes. Um, he'll be releasing this interview on his podcast feed as well. And the Terrain podcast is about movies. Storytelling animals is typically about books. Um, so for this episode, we talk about both, um, specifically Jurassic Park, the 1990 novel by Michael Crichton, and the 1993 movie directed by Steven Spielberg. This is also part three in my four-part series on animal agency. Um, listeners may recall the first episode last month was about animal creativity. Next, I did one looking at animals as political agents. And so this one, I wanted to explore how animal agency is depicted in fiction. Um, in this case, Jurassic Park is a work where a lot of the main plot revolves around the idea that other animals are unpredictable and impossible to control. Um, so we talk about that. We also talk about um, de-extinction a bit, uh, scientific efforts to bring back extinct animals. Um, Jurassic Park explores this fictionally through bringing back dinosaurs. Um, but I recently wrote an article for Vox about uh, contemporary real-life efforts to bring back the woolly mammoth, the Tasmanian tiger, the dodo bird, and the passenger pigeon through genetic uh, engineering. For various reasons, I think this is maybe sounds cool, but it's a bad idea. I think it would be hard on the animals themselves. We touch on this in the episode. Um, if you want to learn more, I'll link my article uh, in the episode description, um, and I'll also link Matt's Substack. Uh, I like his work and suspect many of you will. If you want to keep up with my podcast, um, the next episode will finish up the series I'm doing on animal agency, and then I'll be transitioning for a few weeks into uh, a series of episodes related to cars and transportation. Um, you can like or follow this podcast on your preferred listening app to make sure you find out about new episodes. Um, you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter for updates, um, or you can support this podcast with a small monthly donation on Patreon, and you'll get early access to a lot of these episodes as well. I also facilitate a book club for podcast listeners. Um, for more information on how to join that, go to my website, DaytonMartindale.com slash book hyphen club. Again, that link is in the episode description. But without further ado, welcome to Jurassic Park. All right, we're talking Jurassic Park. Classic movie from 1993. Uh, you should be familiar with it, but in case you aren't, it's about bringing back bringing back dinosaurs from uh, extinction, bringing them back to life, and making a theme park around it. And it doesn't go very well. No. Uh, <laughs> based on the Michael Crichton book of the same name. Now, I. I read the book, but it was a long time ago, like when I was a kid. I, I was in like fifth or sixth grade or something. Um, but uh, but I have watched the movie many times, and I watched it again today. And mm -hmm. Dayton, you just wa you just read the book yes. and watched the movie. 
I, over the last week or so, I read the book and for the first time, and I watched the movie on recording this on a Friday. I watched it on a Wednesday night. Um, and I mean, I, I had seen the movie once as a as a kid, and I honestly like didn't have super clear memories of it. Um, <laughs> I I was into dinosaurs as a kid, but kind of more lame before time. Uh, but, but then I, I watched it as an adult, maybe two years ago for the first time since, and then kind of rewatched all the sequels a year or two ago and then rewatched this first one again. And yeah, it's, it's probably, you know, it's still probably the best of the six. Uh, they're all good in some ways and flawed in other ways. Um, (laughs) but it's a fun movie. Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, Steven Spielberg pretty much always makes an entertaining movie. And so you would, you would broach the idea of doing some kind of joint Mm -hmm. podcast. And I thought this would be a great movie to do because it's kind of, you know, your podcast about animals focuses on animals um, and, and and environmental issues and kind of that intersection. Mm -hmm. I'm more, talking about climate environmental issues a little more broadly, I guess I would say. And I feel like this movie is really something. So I want something about animals for sure. And I think in addition to being just a good movie, I I feel like Jurassic Park has some interesting themes about uh, trying to control nature and the, um, especially for for profit seeking purposes and the folly of that and and the way the way that we think about animals in particular mm-hmm. first of all I'm wondering what how the book and the movie were different well yeah so the the first thing you said is sort of about controlling animals for profit and I would say the biggest difference uh, between the book and the movie is that in the movie, John Hammond, who's the older man who conceives the idea for the dinosaur park, um, who, you know, is behind the funding, but is kind of the visionary behind it. He is, I would say, generally presented sympathetically. Um, he, you know, there are times where you get frustrated with him, and obviously it's sort of his fault that he brought T-Rexes back into the world, and maybe that wasn't a good idea. Um, but, you know, he's a kind grandpa and he, you know, he, he says to the lawyer that he wants poor kids to be able to come to the park too. Um, so he doesn't want it to be too expensive all the time. Yeah. They really, just to briefly interrupt you, cause it's something I, I noted when I was watching it today. They, they make the lawyer, uh, Gennaro, he's like the really rapacious, bad capitalist who doesn't care about mm-hmm. anything but money. And then John Hammond's kind of like the like benevolent sort of nice capitalist, like I spare no expense mm-hmm. um, sort of on the surface, but yeah, continue in the book. Hammond is horrible. Uh, <laughs> so he's like, he gives a whole speech about how it'd be stupid to use genetic engineering to make um, medicine because you can't make money that way. And so you should make, use it to make en- entertainment instead. And he's just like, he goes on a little, rant about how much money they can charge and that it's well at least the rich kids will be able to see it and you know it's mm. he is 
he is the rapacious capitalist in the book. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and kind of everyone who works under him, um, kind of hates him. Um, mm-hmm. so like the engineers and the doctor and the security people, every time we get their perspective, Hammond is always like, we can make this work. Like, you know, don't hurt the dinosaurs. They're going to make me billions. Like, just make it work. And all the people who work for him are like, this is way harder than he thinks. Like he doesn't understand how complicated it is. And, and I think the, um, there's sort of a connection there to both like running a business and running and trying to run nature is often sort of the people at the top of the hierarchy who are trying to control things don't necessarily understand how a system actually functions, whether that's a workplace or an ecosystem. And uh, it's, it's not like Michael Crichton necessarily had, amazing politics all the time i i think he became a climate denier um but the the movie's a lot more sympathetic to to the rich guy and and the um in fact um i i was just reading on wikipedia earlier today that apparently steven spielberg um like consciously wanted to make hammond more sympathetic because he like related to him as like as a showman um uh-huh. <laughs> which I don't know. I don't think I would read that book and relate to like the clear, obvious <laughs> villain. Um, yeah. But well, and, and Hammond's played by Richard Attenborough, brother of legendary naturalist, you know, wildlife documentary uh, voiceover mm-hmm. star uh, David Attenborough, which is interesting. David Attenborough, who is uh, also a narrator of Prehistoric Planet, um, which have you seen this documentary series? No, it's a. Uh, it came out last year, and there's going to be some new episodes. I think later this month in May. Uh, it's basic. It's basically like CGI um, Cretaceous period dinosaurs. Uh, mm-hmm. They like it's a nature documentary. They invent scenarios for all these animals, dinosaurs to go through, and David Attenborough narrates it like it's a nature documentary. Um, anyway, it, the CGI is incredible. It's very cool and gets at one of the things that. I think the movie does a little better than the book is I think they're kind of similar quality, but, but the movie does better is kind of invoking the awe and wonder at the dinosaurs. Um, mm-hmm. The first time that uh, Dr. Grant and Ellie Sattler, um, the paleontologists and paleobotanists, uh, scientists who get sent to this park to see whether it's safe, basically um, it, it's not, it turns out, but the first time they see dinosaurs, they like, <laughs> they go nuts. Um, yeah, which yeah, I think really is the classic only... scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. where he he turns her head to look at yeah, uh, brontosaurus. I think, and and yeah, they they. I think that's the only sort of acceptable response to seeing a dinosaur, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and there's a little like the first time Grant sees a dinosaur from in the book is from a helicopter, and he like just kind of breaks down laughing. Um, which I get as a response, but kind of from then on, like no one is really that excited to see dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, and I think in the movie, even, you know, there are breaks in the tension where often it's the herbivores, like when the Brachiosaurus, a long neck, uh, starts eating from the tree that they're sleeping in after mm-hmm. like Grant and the kids ran away from the T-Rex and climbed a tree and, fell asleep um and they wake up to this sauropod brachiosaurus dinosaur 
stretching its giant neck into their tree and munching on leaves. And it's this moment of, of wonder, um, that I think is a, a nice break from, uh, from running from carnivores. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, yeah, there's just, there's a, a few scenes like that. You're talking about CGI. And one thing I was thinking about watching this is how, like, it's kind of amazing how well, how good the effects hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, it's a mixture of like animatronic and costumes and CGI, but it, I don't know. I, I feel like it looks pretty good. Yeah. I, would agree that a lot of movies from 1993, like you can still enjoy them, but they don't necessarily look as good CGI effects wise. And yeah, I didn't, it didn't look like it was a 30 year old movie. Yeah. So you wrote an article recently about this very topic, not dinosaurs, but bringing back woolly mammoths and dodos and something that people are trying to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you asked about this because um, that was part of why I chose Jurassic Park when you suggested a few movies we could talk about because I've yeah. been writing and thinking about de-extinction. Um, so basically in the, in the movie, right, um, they are able to find dinosaur DNA frozen in like mosquitoes who had sucked dinosaur blood who were stuck in amber. Um and my understanding is that this is not, in real life, a plausible way to find dinosaur DNA. Most dinosaur DNA, if not all, has totally broken down by now. But animals that went extinct slightly more recently, um, we do have their DNA. And so the woolly mammoth, for instance, um, I think went extinct maybe around 10,000-ish years ago. With the exact, you know, um, And the there's no, like... At least no one has found frozen in the ice like a fully intact mammoth nucleus with all of its DNA intact. But they found snippets of mammoth DNA all over. Um, Mm -hmm. And they've remarkably been able to um, sequence all these snippets into what the mammoth genome should look like. Um, And using this, some people wish to uh, basically recreate the mammoth DNA. Um, So in, in Jurassic Park... Basically, they they take snippets of dinosaur DNA and they fill in the rest with frogs, frog DNA, um, which becomes relevant uh, later on when the frog DNA allows them to switch sex and breed and propagate new baby dinosaurs. Um, In the book, it's a little more complicated, but it still comes down to frog DNA. Um, But Mm. in this case, scientists would uh, take elephant DNA and using what mammoth DNA looked like, uh, they would then use like CRISPR genetic engineering technology to modify elephant DNA to be to look more like mammoth DNA. So they'd give it the genes for hair. They'd give it the genes um, that would allow it to like survive in cold temperatures. Um, and there's various genes they want to give it. Um, and anyway, so there's a a an area, and I I think in somewhere in, in Russia in the tundra um, called Pleistocene Park. Um, where they're sort of trying to recreate the um, like mammoth step ecosystem with the um, grazers who are there. And, and the idea is that a large grazer like a mammoth that has huge impacts on its ecosystem, you know, knocks over trees, leaves depressions in its footsteps, etc., um, would 
uh, help restore this ecosystem and potentially help prevent the uh, release of methane from the permafrost. Um, so, yeah, they call it Pleistocene Park. They want to remake mammoths. Um, the the trouble, which is not unlike Jurassic Park, although you know slightly different because it's not about necessarily bloodthirsty carnivores, but it's just like these these uncertainties, right? Like. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say when I like describe that, oh, you just use CRISPR to put in these new genes in an elephant DNA, and then you have a mammoth. It sounds a lot simpler than it is. And so there's questions of like, who would raise the mammoth? Like they're social creatures with, you know, with strong matriarch led herds um, who mm-hmm. share cultural knowledge. And how are they going to learn the cultural knowledge when there's no actual mammoth around? Like, Will elephants accept them or reject them? Um, and then kind of there's technical problems too, but um, I think the there's a, a quote in the book, Jurassic Park, where, yeah, Dr. Ian Malcolm, who's this chaos, um, he's played by Jeff Goldblum in the movie. Um, he's this like chaotician, I think he calls himself, mathematician on chaos, which is about unpredictability um, and just kind of like, this idea that he has a million quotes about how you can't actually control nature um, and that living things are alive and they act alive. um, And that makes them unpredictable because uh, they're making their choices and we don't actually like totally understand them. Um, And, you know, we know way more about mammoths than we do about dinosaurs because, you know, they're, they're more recent, there's more evidence. um, But we still don't know, like, we know some of what they ate, but we don't know exactly what these new creatures would eat. Um, we don't know. I, I read this fascinating thing that like um, reindeers who were kept in zoos, I think it was reindeer, some caribou-like reindeer-like creature uh, was kept in zoos and it used to die all the time um, in zoos. And then they figured out that there's actually like this specific lichen or something that they needed to supplement their diet. Um, and that, and so there's just all these things that we don't actually know about other animals that they need or they do that, that just complicate any attempt to keep them in captivity. Um, and I think Jurassic Park is obviously like a very dramatized example of that. Um, Uh like one of the things I'm thinking about is like, (laughs) how big is this Island? And like, (laughs) are the brontosauruses, uh, you know, able to, or I think they're technically brachiosaurus or something, but anyway, that's beside the point. Like these huge, you know, hundred foot long dinosaurs, like, are they, <laughs> do they just like walk back and forth and get, get bored? Um, <laughs> yeah. It must be a pretty big Island. With all these di- mm-hmm. huge dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like triceratops are like the size of an elephant. T-Rex are like 30 feet tall. These are, huge creatures and i yeah i think anyway the um the ethical message of jurassic park that stands out to me is is one kind of this commentary on not trying to control life um life finds a way as dr malcolm says but but two i I think humility um and just kind of like the sheer bigness of the dinosaurs is sort of a reminder of that we are also kind of small and yeah, that our, our inability to control them um, is sort of a reminder that we can't control everything. Although what's a little funny is 
that it's sort of the computer programmer's fault and the carnivore's fault. Or like, it, like if they had just had Triceratops, maybe they would have been fine. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what do you make of like the the stuff about like trying to control nature? Yeah, I mean, you hit on a lot of it, and and one thing I was thinking about. Uh, well, one thing I think about a lot, um, and I think you touched on this in your article, is like in terms of de de extinction in particular, like why are we trying to to bring back extinct animals when we can't even keep the ones we have now from going extinct? <laughs> I'm like, well, how about we solve that problem first? And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, it just and I think you know you're, you're just going to bring uh, you know, let's say they do develop the technology to do that. Well, they're just going to go extinct again or, or live, you know, have one living in some horrible life in captivity or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I was reading that, I guess Ian Malcolm was kind of Michael Crichton's, like the voice of Michael Crichton in this movie. Uh, okay. And so like, yeah, this idea that you can't control nature, it's too unpredictable and you know, it's too, there's just risk you can't fathom. And I think, you know, I think that's a really important idea. And I think a lot of people have trouble thinking about like risk in that way. Uh, and, and being, you know, using the precautionary principle and things like that. And I think it's really interesting that I was also reading about Michael Crichton, um, before we went to the show, cause I had heard that he was like, you know, very much a, a, a right winger, especially later in his life. Um, and it, you know, this, to me, this Jurassic Park doesn't really, you know, it doesn't seem like conservative to me very much, but you know, he was, he was a climate denier, like a full fledged climate change denier, which is Mm -hmm. pretty funny considering the message of this movie. Um, I guess, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what was, what was going on with that guy. He seems, and and he had some other books that I guess had some very right wing themes. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think, yeah, I, I think this idea that we can control nature as, is really, you know, I don't know if it's ch- a chicken or an egg thing, but it's really at the heart of a lot of our ecological problems. I feel like, or or at least is used as justification for them. Um, and, you know, and we see it with with climate change with you know, the geoengineering and, and the idea that techno high tech solutions are, are going to be available that uh, Mm -hmm. may not necessarily be uh, versus, versus uh, dealing with the actual things we have in front of us and, and getting down to more deeper fundamental relationships we have Mm -hmm. uh, with animals and nature. Which is, I think, a little bit what the mammoth thing is. Um, I, yeah. I listened to this audiobook of a book called Wooly um, by Ben Mesrick, who's the guy who wrote the book that got turned into the social network um, mm. as well. But he wrote kind of this like narrativized account of the scientists trying to bring back the mammoth. And when he's talking about sort of how it theoretically could help um, the like stop the slow the permafrost um, methane release, um, he he says like. You know, it's it's super complicated to like change our entire economies to stop emitting fossil fuels. Like, you know, it could be easier to just have the scientific solution. Um, 
<laughs> and, you know, I don't know if he got that from talking to scientists or if it was just sort of a, a writer using the, that as a crutch or something. But, um, but yeah, like one, like it, it would just take a long time to have enough mammoths to make a difference. Uh, and sort of by the time we get there, like we actually need to have stopped using fossil fuels. Like we can't just rely on elaborate technological solutions. Um, the, I talked to a couple different like philosophers and, and read some papers about this and everyone I talked to is like, look, maybe there is some climate benefit to bringing back the mammoths, but like, there's no way that's the easiest way to <laughs> like reduce methane emissions. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think from this sort of scientific perspective, like the, the easy thing to do is always have a technical solution. And it's just not true. Like technical solutions also can take a long time. They can fail. They can not come about and they are insufficient. Um, and which isn't to say we don't need technology, obviously. Um, but this idea that we can, if we can use science to engineer a solution rather than have kind of a more holistic social, political, cultural, economic changes is dangerous. Yeah. I'd, well, in your research, did you know, how close are they to actually doing this? So, so I think they're not actually that close. Yeah, that was, um, that was my guess. Yeah, I, it's <laughs> a and I, I think it depends to sort of how um, how much they want it to be like a mammoth versus like a very slightly modified elephant. Uh-huh. Um, I think like the full goal of like the entire mammoth genome seems if not impossible, then um, extremely unlikely and far off. But like a slightly modified elephant, maybe they could do. But even just cloning normal animals is hard. Um, like Dolly the sheep, who was the first sheep clone, died at a relatively young age for a sheep of... Yeah. Honestly, I, f- I forget exactly of what, but just cloned animals tend to have all these health problems. Um, and, and and yeah, so, so even just cloning elephants is would be difficult and no one would knows exactly how to do it. And like it's been suggested to use uh artificial external wombs and like we don't know how to do those for for anything really, but especially for a giant elephant. Um yeah. so anyway, yeah, there's all these hurdles and and so to say like getting um <laughs> getting there is the <laughs> the cleanest path to reducing methane emissions is is silly and I think comes about from a blinkered view of the world um what's kind of fun is you know there's a little bit in the movie of Mal- dr malcolm gets a few speeches about you know your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think stop to think whether or not they should um, yeah and about how like life finds a way uh you know life will you know finds a way to break through barriers and propagate itself um even in the face of obstacles and it's hard to control but it's funny i didn't know for sure that uh Crichton sort of saw dr malcolm as his uh his mouthpiece so it's funny that you say that because in the book dr malcolm has like a million monologues um <laughs> and i i i wrote down a few just because i don't know that he needed quite so many but there's yeah. some good stuff that he like you know, he says, you cannot make an animal and not expect it to act alive, to be unpredictable, to escape. But they don't see that, meaning like Dr. Meaning like Hammond and the scientists. Mm-hmm. It's uniquely Western training, and much of the rest of the world is nauseated by the thought of it. 
He says, you create many of them in a very short time, you never learn anything about them, yet you expect them to do your bidding, because you made them, and therefore you think you own them. You forget that they are alive, they have an intelligence of their own, and they may not do your bidding. You forget how little you know about them, how incompetent you are to do the things that you so frivolously call simple. Um, And the last one I'll quote is, he says, you decide you won't be at the mercy of nature, you decide you will control nature, and from that moment on you're in deep trouble because you can't do it you have made systems that require you to do it and you can't do it and you never have and you never will your powers are much less than your dreams of reason would have you believe and i think a lot of these require or apply to other forms of geoengineering um obviously Mm -hmm. like i mean i guess like genetically engineering a mammoth is a form of geoengineering uh but and and you know that involves living things but even you know trying to aerosols in the atmosphere to block solar radiation or whatever else um just kind of like interfering in these complex systems is so much harder than it sounds when you explain it like (laughs) yeah i think like if you just talk about the relevant variables to your project you can explain it in a way that makes perfect sense um but like the atmosphere or the ocean the like food webs are also you know, unpredictable, which is Malcolm's point as a chaos theorist, is that very slight perturbations can then cause down the line huge differences in outcome. Um, and yeah, I, I think this sort of thing is effective as a cautionary tale. I think in terms of his his right wing politics, where it maybe starts to come in the book, is, well, not necessarily right wing, but toward the end of the book, uh, Dr. Malcolm gives a speech that's like, uh, I didn't write this one down, but um, that's sort of to the effect of someone says like aren't we like destroying nature or destroying the earth um and he kind of says like we could never destroy the earth the earth is super resilient it's gone through mass extinctions and this and that um Mm -hmm. and really like we can we can destroy ourselves but we can never hurt the earth um and i think there's truth in that in so far as like yes life will persist um but i think we can hurt a lot of other organisms (laughs) that aren't us um and so it's you know we would take out a lot with us if we went down um and i think that that is something to be concerned about yeah yeah well that that's that's very interesting i'm glad that you that you um noted that because yeah that okay that makes sense and that's something i was thinking about with the way that like malcolm in particular talks about controlling nature in this movie you could see, you can kind of see how it can go to like climate denial where it's like, okay, you know, nature is so big, we can't possibly affect it. Exactly. Yeah. But, but it's more like we can hurt it, but we, you know, we can actually do a lot to, to the natural world, but, um, you know, it's, uh, getting it to do precisely what we want, I think is the, is the hard part. Um, mm-hmm. unless maybe it's uh doing uh destruction if that's your goal but um, i don't think that's usually the goal what so one other thing i want to bring up is you you talked about you know that this is something that incorporates sort of um kind of themes of animals and also broader themes about ecology um and I think in some ways in in this movie and kind of in the series as a whole, they can sort of come into tension where um, like dinosaurs are simultaneously 
individual animals with their own interests and uh and decision making and also sort of sometimes just sort of symbols of technological overreach Mm -hmm. um and i was thinking about all the sequels and in in most of the sequels the dinosaurs act with a reason that's made clear to the viewer so for example in, in the lost world which is the second one um like the T-Rex starts to chase them because they have the T-Rex's child. Um, the, it's the T-Rex's child got hurt. And so the good scientists are, are trying to like help the baby T-Rex. Mm-hmm. Um, but the T-Rex starts to chase them because they have the child and, and uh, um, like in the Jurassic Park three, the Velociraptors chase them because one of them has a Velociraptor egg. Um, and, and the new ones get kind of maybe even more explicitly animal rightsy in some ways. Um, and the like in Jurassic, the first Jurassic World, which I don't know, has very weird politics. Um, <laughs> but the like the Indominus Rex, which is the sort of T Rex on steroids, that's the main threat in the movie. Um, is they sort of talk about it at the beginning, like it was raised potentially like these mammoths, right? It, like it was raised with no parent, totally isolated in, um, in an enclosure with no other dinosaur interaction. Um, and some of the characters remark like, oh, so it's probably psychotic. Um, and like the, the recognition that conditions of upbringing would like traumatize an animal and that trauma would affect its behavior is I think... Yeah, I, I think just an attempt to make the viewer understand that um, sort of there's a reason the animal is acting this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, sorry, what was last example in the, in the most recent Jurassic World, Dominion, the director, Colin Trevorrow or something, which I don't think it's a smart movie, <laughs> but I do think okay. that one thing that's very smart about it is the director has said, like, he didn't want to make like an all out war between dinosaurs and humans, like Planet of the Apes. Dinosaurs get on the mainland in the movie. Um, and, you know, he, he basically decided to treat them more like bears or wolves or actual carnivores, where for the most part they have their own space. Um, but sometimes, you know, there's overlap and there can be conflict in, in areas where the borders between, you know, human dominated areas and wildlife dominated areas intersect. Um, but, it's not like, as it kind of is in the first Jurassic Park, the T-Rex and the raptors seem just <laughs> hell-bent on chasing down the main characters. And it's not totally obvious, like, what, like why? Uh, uh, you know, uh-huh. they're, like, they don't necessarily seem to be hungry. Um, it seem, there might be easier prey around, um, but they're just very intent on hunting them down. And I, I think there's sort of two ways that I think about this. And one is just sort of that it is uh, more thrilling if they're relentlessly being hunted down. <laughs> um, and I get that. And two, I, I think kind of um, on this theme of sort of the unpredictability of nature, as much as it sort of gives the other animals minds in the sequels, when we when we say, oh, like there is a reason they're acting this way. Um there's also, I think, something to be said for this and just like sort of having no idea why they're doing what they're doing. 
Um, yeah. And just like, oh, we can't actually predict them. They are wholly their own. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Because, <laughs> well, to what you're saying about the, the dinosaurs hunting, like that's something that, you know, it, it does, it, it, it can make for uh compelling drama in movies, but like, um, you know, to bring up another Spielberg film, something that's more explicit about this, like Jaws, uh, you know, that really set back the, the, uh, people's understanding of sharks, I think. Um, <laughs> and it, it does, it does kind of bother me when movies make anim like have an animal that's like a serial killer sociopath. that's just like hunting people for no reason, which is like, <laughs> that's not a thing that <laughs> like, that just doesn't, that's not a thing that happens and wouldn't happen. And it's, <laughs> and, and, um, really i i think can do real damage to like the cause for like you know conserving animals in, in the in the wild and then yeah i think the what you said about intelligence is such a good point in the way they think because um i was thinking about this watching uh not to go too off topic but there's this new show on apple tv called extrapolations and oh yeah they de-extinction is uh a theme of that show and also on one episode they learn how to communicate with whales and um you know it's we we think about like animal intelligence as like in comparison with our own versus being like on like the spectrum of like okay human intelligence is 100 and a, a whale's like an 85 and a <laughs> dog's like a 76 or something this is uh -huh. like something that's just very different and maybe we probably will never be able to to really comprehend. Right. I mean, we also try to do that with human intelligence, and that's also not <laughs> True, how yeah. human intelligence works. That's yeah, and that's yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I haven't watched extrapolations, but I I hope to. Uh, yeah, that like the raptors in this movie, they make a big deal about that raptors were super intelligent. Um, they're pack mm -hmm. hunters, but one thing that I think they just sort of didn't know at the time. I uh, So Steve Brusati is a paleontologist who actually I had on my podcast a year ish ago, um, but he was a paleontology advisor for the recent Jurassic World movies. And he wrote this book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. Uh -huh. And um, the one of the things he says is that the encephalization quotient, which is the roughly, I think, the ratio of brain to body size in t-rex is comparable to that of a chimpanzee um and like for the reasons that we just mentioned like you can't just look at brain to body size and give it an intelligence ranking right mm -hmm. um but it does often correlate with like certain forms of problem solving or um mm -hmm. at least some aspects of cognition um seem to be prevalent in animals with larger brains relatively um but anyway just like I don't know. I think I think it is both impressive and like a little bit scary if I were on Jurassic Park to think about T-Rexes as like having the social intelligence and capability of a chimpanzee. <laughs> yeah. So is that is the is the the current theorizing that the T-Rex was a probably a, a fairly, you know, quote unquote intelligent um complex 
uh, animal. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's only so much we know, but I, yeah. they I, they are believed to have like raised their young, or at least the mothers did, and um, you know, been fairly intelligent. And and the animals that are descended that are most closely related to T. Rex and raptors are birds who often have you know impressive cognitive abilities and um again you know which is not to say that other animals don't um but birds are i think impressive in a way that's more readily accessible to humans yeah that's an interesting thing about this movie is that it was like so they talk you know back when this came out everyone you know i i think the idea that dinosaurs were um that were relate, closely related to birds was around, but it wasn't in popular understanding. And I don't, I don't know how prevalent it was in, in the science, scientific world, but like they talk about, um, you know, Alan Grant talks about that in the movie, but they're, they're not, they're portrayed just as like giant lizards. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but that's something that afterwards, you know, nowadays, you know, you see drawings of dinosaurs, they have like, feathers and things like that but it was kind of um it was in some ways it was ahead of the curve because they were talking about that but also you know like i said they're they're portrayed as as very lizard-like yeah the the new jurassic world dominion from last year has a feathered dinosaur that's very cool um but but yeah it's funny to think about a lot of dinosaur science is relatively young and 30 years ago was very different and yeah, yeah they were ahead of the curve making the bird connection at all but I don't know if they would have known about feathers back then. And one of the funny things is they present the asteroid extinction as like, this is one theory people have, but other people have other theories. Uh Um, And I think like it was in the nineties that that sort of came to be the more prominent explanation. And so Uh I don't know for hundred percent sure, but probably when they were making the movie, they actually was like, if you ask someone how the dinosaurs went extinct, not everyone would have said an asteroid. Um, and it's just, I don't know. It's funny to think that my whole life that's been, I feel like something I know, but it wasn't something people knew when they made Jurassic Park. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, another thing is they, um, you know, velociraptors were actually very small, like the size of a dog. And, but they wanted to like, you know, they wanted them to, for the movie to be big and, mm more menacing and scary and then like right after the movie came out they discovered the utah raptor which is like basically exactly uh what they portrayed in the movie so they were kind of a a wild coincidence they were ahead of the curve there i went to this kind of hilarious museum exhibit at the field museum of natural history in chicago a few years Mm -hmm. ago that was like tied into the jurassic world movies and Mm -hmm. so it had all these like animatronic dinosaurs and the <laughs> the signs in front of them would read like it would describe the dinosaurs and then it would be like they actually didn't really look like this or like they were actually a lot smaller or you know um kind of point out the discrepancies in how they were portrayed in the movies and oh, how yeah. they were in real life but it was I don't know. It was just funny as a museum exhibit because if you didn't read to the end of each placard, you just would have learned false information. <laughs> right, um, yeah. But, but yeah, the, the other thing when I talked to Steve Prasadi last year is I asked them like, would you start a Jurassic Park if you could? And 
I had, you know, I had no idea where he would take that question. And, and his first response was like, well, it's like, it was a lot warmer back then and different, you know, ecosystem and plants and like, maybe dinosaurs wouldn't really like being around now. Um, and so like, maybe it'd be unethical to bring them back into such a radically different situation. Um, and that's actually something Dr. Ian Malcolm says in the book is like Triceratops lived in a totally different, you know, atmosphere to eight different plants and such. And like, uh, that he sort of attributes one of the Triceratopses as unwell. And he thinks part of their sickness is just being in an ecosystem that's not meant for them. Um, and mm. you know, if we brought back the mammoth, it would be less, uh, radically different, but it's certainly a lot warmer than it was 10,000 years ago. Um, and only getting warmer. Um, and, and, you know, there's less space for wildlife. Like, it's not like elephants are doing great in the wild right now. Um, and even, you know, there's plans to bring back more recently extinct creatures like the dodo or the Tasmanian tiger. Um, and even if they've only been, you know, Tasmanian tigers have only been extinct like 100 years even. But, like, where they used to live is now, like, there's ranchers there and there's, um, you know, it's just a lot harder place to live than it used to be. And there's a worry that they would just go extinct again um or at least face a an unwelcoming um unwelcoming reception yeah well i'm glad you brought that up because that's that's a good point because like you know we think and, and in some ways this is necessary just to like communicate and make sense of the world we think of animals uh including humans as these like discrete organisms versus like you can't really understand an animal outside of the context of the ecological context that they have evolved in and, and live in. So like, and, and even just, you know, a, uh, an animal or a human to be even more specific is not just a human. Like we have, uh, you know, we're, we're covered in bacteria inside and outside and have these micro biomes and we live in, we live in ecosystems on earth that are like essentially extensions of us or like you can't really the a human outside of the context of earth like you can't really um um what's the word i'm trying to say like just just and and, and to connect this to like more other techno utopian dreams of like terraforming other planets or living in space and stuff and like like you can't i don't want to say it's not it's not ever going to be possible but um you can't really understand a human or a dinosaur outside of uh the life support system of the ecology they live in mm -hmm. and so you, if you're bringing back a dinosaur into a world that's yeah like different plants different you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe there's a few similar organisms. Uh, I think, uh, uh, but but probably not. You know, every all the organisms around are different. The temperature is different. The the maybe the atmospheric concentration of oxygen and and all these things are are different. And it's it's not just you can't just understand an animal as this discrete thing. Mm. Yeah, I think, and one of the things that's fun about in the movie and it's in the book too is is like when the paleontologists see the dinosaurs part of what they're excited about is like 
oh, they like they behave this way, like they, you know, all these things that they just couldn't tell from the fossils. Uh-huh. Um, like oh, they travel in herds, or they, I, you know, stand on their hind legs, or I don't know if that's specific <laughs> things, but um, but yeah, just that like an animal interacting with its ecosystem is different. You learn more things than you can from an inert fossil. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, extending that to what you said, like there is no animal and iso- there's no isolated organism. Um, there's only organisms within a complex system that is very difficult to engineer. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm also skeptical of terraforming for similar reasons that we can just recreate uh, a a suitable flow of organisms and nutrients and such. Yeah, it's just like getting back to complexity of nature. Like, I mean, just complexity that's beyond comprehension. Have you read Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson? No, it's... <laughs> I I'm I'm reading through his books. I okay. like I read them kind of out of order, yeah. but I'm I'm reading the ones that I haven't read in chronological order, and I think I that's like two books away from where I am. But yeah, nice. tell me about it. Oh well, yeah, that, I mean that's uh well uh, I don't want to spoil it, but that's what it's about is is uh um people sent to try and uh, colonize another planet. What happens on that on that journey? Yeah, it's it's a good one. Yeah, you had him on your pod. Uh, you had him on your podcast, didn't you? I did. Yeah, it was a a highlight of this for me. Um, <laughs> second to this, of course, but um, the <laughs> yeah, in his Mars trilogy, I think is a tries to do a very convincing terraforming, and I love it. Um, yeah, but it's I think it's sort of notable that he also is sort of skeptical that we could actually do it. Yeah. Well, I think I think since he wrote that, and I think he, I read him in an interview or something saying that, like, you know, they discovered more about the soil. The soil of Mars is just like uh, toxic or radioactive or something, and it just would make even what he, you know, the slight, the the science fiction that he wrote about in that series, not possible. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah. I won't be moving to Mars. <laughs> You're not going to go with Elon to Mars? No, he didn't invite me. <laughs> he didn't buy a blue check. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't think he's uh, he's actually going to be going there anytime soon. Either. <laughs> Have you seen, uh, actually, you brought up um, the, the Tasmanian Tiger. There's a movie called The Hunter with Willem Dafoe. Have you seen that? I have not. That's, that's interesting. That's an interesting movie. What's the uh, premise? A, he's a mercenary hunter. Okay. Sent, uh, so there's like, you know, the Tasmanian tiger uh, is, you know, uh, nominally extinct, but there it is kind of like an urban legend where like, I'm not, maybe not urban legend story where, but like, you know, people think maybe there's like mm-hmm. random sightings or whatever, but mm-hmm. uh, so this is like the story that there was a sighting and some biotech company hires him to, to try and find the Tasmanian tiger. The oh, interesting. One left. And, um, yeah. I should check that out. It's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting movie. Actually, Sam Neill's in that as well as Jurassic Park. 
Well, that, speak- that's that's another thing I was thinking about in watching Jurassic Park is the cast is like <laughs> is really outstanding, and you have these really good actors in these really small roles. Yeah, no, it, it was kind of incredible. Like Samuel Jackson's in this. Like, <laughs> yeah, hold on your butts, classic <laughs> line. Vince uh, Vaughn's in the sequel randomly too. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, the I don't know. And then I was I was reading the Wikipedia page, and apparently they almost cast or, or they considered Harrison Ford for uh, Doctor Grant, huh. and and Jim Carrey for Doctor Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> oh man it's hard to imagine anyone other than goldblum as uh, Ian malcolm but jim carrey would uh, would have been an interesting <laughs> um, but well, yeah and, no. uh wayne knight also is really enjoyable as the uh, uh you know famously known as newton uh from seinfeld as the kind of uh yes underpaid underappreciated uh tech guy who yes who uh really burns the whole thing down yeah it's kind of all his fault (laughs) yeah well uh yeah or or i guess you could say it's hammond's fault for underpaying him yes there you go that's a good Uh, point that was unfair of me (laughs) no it's uh you know uh being uh you know he should be fairly compensated for his labor but also you know you, you shouldn't uh turn off the turn off the mm-hmm. t-rex and and raptor fences mm-hmm. <laughs> for that yeah well yeah I, I am generally critical of keeping other animals in fences true but yeah. i you know i would hesitate to once they were on in that situation i would at least like have an exit strategy before i turned them off yeah gotta get the people uh uh-huh. get the people safety hopefully what do you think of this? Do you think the sequels are good? Um, so define good. I like them all. <laughs> I like watching them. Um, I think like the, this one, like there's a, a scene in the kitchen where the, the, these two rappers are stalking the kids and they're like hiding in this industrial kitchen. And there's just like some really good set pieces in this, like the, the pacing and the tension is great. Um, and I think it's just sort of smoother. I mean, it's, you know, there's some dumb dialogue and stuff, but um, it's smoother than the others. But yeah. they all have exciting scenes. I think, like, the new ones have uh, kind of, like, I would say very bad gender politics. Like <laughs> the way that Bryce Dallas Howard's character is treated is, like, why are you a businesswoman when you could be a mom instead? Um, but, but they're also like, and more explicitly anti-corporate than this and kind of have a animal rights ethic. And so I, I think there's a lot of like thematically cool stuff in them. They're clumsy, but I like them, but this is like, this one's probably the best made, but none of them are, they're all kind of the same movie. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. you're in an enclosure with animal with dinosaurs, and you gotta escape. Um, and it's like a pretty good formula. It's not like the others are that much worse. Like, there's only so. I mean, you probably could screw it up pretty badly, but uh, I don't know. Have, have you watched them all? 
Uh, I haven't seen them all. I've seen some of them. Yeah, it's. I think I did watch the most re- most recent one, and I think the you know the you know despite what we were saying about animals and their ecosystems and not being able to understand them outside of that context, you know I think it's an interesting. It's at least an interesting idea to be like, okay, we're you know we're co. It's basically like they're, they're people having to learn to coexist with dinosaurs, mm-hmm. uh, which is an interesting idea. And and I mean, like to your point, like in terms of it all being like somewhat entertaining, like there's something just so cool and fascinating about dinosaurs. I don't know what it is. You know, every kid you were talking about how as a kid you loved dinosaurs, and I did, and every I feel like every kid does. I don't know what it is, but there's something just really awe-inspiring about dinosaurs and and learning about them. I think it, it is, I, I don't know why, but um, I mean, one thing I, I guess is, is maybe just the size of them. And it, it is wild just learning how, uh, how big animals used to be land animals, especially. Um, and even, even like more recent ones, like, the giant sloth and and things like that mm-hmm. uh, uh, or the giant beaver and um yeah i don't know what do you think why why are people so interested in dinosaurs why are they so compelling i think i mean i don't know for sure but i i think the one is just like that they're the closest thing to aliens like um just sort yeah. of life forms that have no I mean, birds are technically dinosaurs, but who have no like super close surviving relative, yeah, uh, and are just so different from anything that we could encounter in our world as it is. But they were on this world, and that is kind of cool. And and I think too, like, I don't know. I I grew up in in the suburbs and and live in a city now, um, and the. I, I would not say that these are human controlled environments because as we talked about, you can't really control ecosystems, but in a lot of ways they're human dominated environments. I mean, Mm -hmm. like in the world today, like the, you know, by mass, by weight, uh, most mammals are either humans or pigs or cows or domesticated animals. Um, And there, you know, there's not as much wildlife left. Um, and I think it's just sort of the idea of a world that was totally without us that had these huge, mm. powerful, you know, kind of smart uh, creatures that had their own whole lives um, is, I, th- I think, it, I don't know, I think it sparks wonder maybe in an analogous but amped up way as as wild animals spark our wonder today. You know, the same reason we watch David Attenborough documentaries is... Um, yeah. you know, watching wildlife and their element is, is a reminder that the world is, is bigger than us. Um, and dinosaurs are a reminder that it's much, much bigger and has been around longer. Um, and I think, I don't know, I <laughs> yeah. can, I, I don't know that five-year-olds are thinking about this as they watch Lane Before Time, but could potentially, you know, just kind of like reorient our sense of our place in the universe. Yeah. Well said. What is your like for me? I think my favorite scene is is the kitchen, uh, like the kitchen hiding from the raptors. But like, what what are the scene or the characters that like just as a pure movie level? Like, what stands out to you? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a good one. I was re- I was reading some of the trivia for this, and they had to, you know, for that one, it was people wearing raptor suits, and it was like really they had to keep switching out people because it was like they had to be like hunched over and can only do it for fifteen minutes or something. Um, interesting, but yeah, uh, my favorite scene, I think. Uh, I mean the the. What you were talking about before, the scenes where it's just, like, people feeling awe at dinosaurs, I think are really, like, probably the the one where they're feeding the brachiosaur uh, from the tree that I think you talked about. That's a really cool one. And just kind of that awe and appreciation and connection with mm-hmm. the natural world is a, is a cool one. Um, in terms of scenes, I feel like that one really stands out. Or when they first when we were talking about before when they first see the dinosaurs and um, Dr. Grant turns uh, Dr. Sattler's head to, to see. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, when, you know, when the, um, the water where the T-Rex is coming and the waters, you can see the river of the water. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's the water cool. shakes with each step. Yeah. In terms of my favorite character, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like the movie is just written so that like Ian Malcolm is the <laughs> coolest, most interesting character, and especially with mm-hmm. Goldblum playing him is is really good. Um, you know, but uh, there's there's so many good lines in this movie from different characters though, and and like I was saying, well, I actually, no, I'm gonna go a little, uh, maybe a little contrarian. I'm gonna say my favorite character is um, is is Wayne Knight as um, uh, Nedry. <laughs> You know, and his his little squeal when he sees the uh, the shaving cream can that, he, that mm-hmm. doubles as a as a smuggle as a um, cold storage device for the embryos to smuggle out, and he he makes a sound like a dinosaur. Basically, <laughs> I don't even. <laughs> and and his you know, it, he's not in the movie for that long, but but he is I thought really good. It's funny in the book he's like he's described as a slob probably fifteen uh-huh. times and. That's an exaggeration, but and it's just like kind of smug, yeah. and they just made him a lot more goofy in the movie. For yeah. it, and I think it worked. And they they changed like they changed Hammond, they changed Nedry, and they added in a, like all like the romance and flirtation is mostly mm-hmm. added in for Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Nedry's Nedry's like encounter with the dinosaur spitting poison is <laughs> is memorable. Yeah, yeah, that's a a good one too. Well, I is there are there other talking points you wanted to bring up with? Mm, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't think so. What do you think? Actually, let me ask you one thing. Um, before we go, that you 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 touched on this a little bit when you're talking about the fences. Um, but what do you think about the concept of animals? I mean, I'm I'm guessing. I know your answer, but I'm curious what you think just the concept of animals being in captivity at all in zoos Mm -hmm. or anything like that is there is there any role for that in our society you think in a just society um ultimately i would say no Uh, yeah i I mean i think jurassic park as as a zoo is already a bad idea (laughs) even before you realize they're dinosaurs i think unfortunately there are animals now in captivity that for whatever reason, uh, you wouldn't 
thrive in the wild. Um, you can't just release yeah. them. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, there's some form of captivity that's going to be the best way to deal with them. I think, I think linking that to um, amusement, linking it to like an entertainment product is dangerous. Um, in that kind of, there's a, I don't know, like the, it, it means that you have a zoo where you're trying to have, you know, at least a couple of every type of animal for people to see, like, even if it's in as, you know, maybe a polar bear shouldn't be in a warm city or something. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and also just kind of limits, you know, if you're often having them in urban areas, it limits because you want to have people come see it. Uh, it often limits the space you can provide for the animals. Uh-huh. And there's just so much evidence for, especially large animals, like having just documented health problems, both physical and mental, um, yeah. from life in zoos. That, And those large animals are often like the main reason people come, or, or at least the, you know, the animal that's on the poster. Um, and then... So, yeah, on, on kind of that practical level of just, like, I think animals are healthier with more space, and when they can be reintroduced in the wild, they should be. When they can't be, uh, you know, some sort of more, like, sanctuary-type situation uh, that's larger and more geared toward recreating a close-to-wild life than, um, than a zoo typically is. Uh, and then, you know, I think kind of philosophically, I... I I think the, you know, zoos talk a lot about conservation now, um, but like historically zoos are not conservation entities, they're entertainment and they come from kind of this colonial impulse to see something cool and put it in a cage for display. And I think, I think sort of philosophically our, our orientation toward wildlife of all sorts should, is, is better served to, as Dr. Malcolm would suggest, uh, <laughs> you know, appreciate their unpredictability, their autonomy, their, their self will. Um, and I think putting them in a cage is, uh, I don't know, a, in an impulse to be, uh, reconsidered, um, for that. What, what do you think? Get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I agree in general, um, um, with what you said, it's just, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how much merit there is to the, you know, like you're saying, zoos talk about conservation and, and that's helping people learn and appreciate, learn about and appreciate animals. But it's, you know, it, it's a very sad thing to go see a, an elephant or a lion in a, in a little, uh, in a little enclosure. Like that's, there's, there's something, I think instinctually we feel something not right about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, as a kid, anyway, I, I liked zoos, but my my understanding is the um, the research shows that uh, people who go to zoos aren't necessarily more likely to care about conservation. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's not too surprising. That kind of the at least you know, and zoos also sometimes try to do conservation through like captive breeding programs or whatever, and with I think very varied success. Uh, it's not. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of failures in that, um, but yeah, even in sort of the stated mission of like inspiring people to have awe of the natural world, I think it also kind of subliminally tells people that other life forms are things that are there for you to look at and 
Jurassic Park teaches us <laughs> that they are not, <laughs> or if we think they are, that they will thwart that. And of course, you know, it's less dangerous than when a T-Rex escapes, but in real life, there are all sorts of animal escapes from zoos that are often fairly impressive. Um, and like there was a chimpanzee that would like gather rocks in the morning and then wait for people to come and throw rocks at them. And orangutans are known to be, uh, common escapers, um, very difficult to keep in zoos. Um, some of my favorite scenes in novels are zoo escapes. There's one in, uh, the Kim Stanley Robinson novel, uh, 40 years of rain, I think it's called, um, 40 signs, something 40 in rain. Um, but there's a big storm at the end and all the zoo animals get out and it's the best part of the book. But I I think there's something uh, very, uh, I mean, even if they probably are also not great for, like it probably wouldn't be great for animals if a hurricane hit the zoo either. Um, but, I don't know. I find something very cathartic in Zoo Escapes, and I suppose Jurassic Park is the ultimate Zoo Escape movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's a good place to end it, I think. <laughs> cool. You have occasional podcasts about movies on Terrain. How can people find you? Oh, find yeah, that? sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, terrain.substack.com. I, I write a newsletter, I do interviews, and also do podcasts like this. Occasionally talking about uh, talking about movies, and cool. uh, where where can people find you? I I my podcast is called Storytelling Animals. Um, we talk about fiction and nonfiction to do with other animals in the non-human world. Uh, and you can find Storytelling Animals just by searching it in any podcast app you prefer. Um, you can also go to my website DaytonMartindale.com um, for links to my writing and my podcast. All right. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I do want to end by quickly teasing a few uh, upcoming projects on this podcast that might be of interest to uh, Jurassic Park enthusiasts and others. Um, so first, I mentioned how I'm a big fan of zoo escapes in fiction. That extends to animal escapes of all, t- all kinds. Um, the Storytelling Animals Book Club on June 27th, that's a Tuesday at 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific, We'll be discussing over Zoom the novel The Plague Dogs by Richard Adams, which is about two dogs who escape from a lab research facility. Um, so I hope you'll join us for that. Um, you can do so either by subscribing on Patreon at the Lorex tier or higher, or you can get a free trial membership in the book club by signing up for my free weekly newsletter. Uh, both of those links are in the episode description. Um, also on the subject of captivity, um, my next episode is going to be with um, someone who works at a an animal sanctuary for farmed animal species, um, and we can talk about sort of, yeah, what it means to try to give um, animals who maybe can't live on their own in the wild um, some form of autonomy in their day-to-day lives. Um, and then, you know, we talked about Steven Spielberg. Um, one of my upcoming episodes is going to be with um, an English professor named Jeremy Withers, about how science fiction depicts um, cars and bikes and other forms of transportation. Um, and so we, we briefly mention um, E.T. in that and some Spielberg-influenced, um, more recent bike-friendly uh, media. Um, so, yeah, you know, that'll be part of my series I'm doing on um, cars and transportation and the environmental impacts thereof. Um, the, the episode about sci-fi and cars 
probably won't be out to the public until early July or so. But um, I've already done the interview, and it was really interesting. I really enjoyed it, um, and Patreon subscribers should be able to listen to it early, I would guess, sometime in the first half of June. So, yeah, if you're interested in any of those, um, Animal Sanctuaries, The Plague Dogs, or Sci-Fi and the Automobile, um, please sign up for my newsletter and or Patreon. Thanks so much. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!